This is the first time I've ever done a trigger warning for any of the stories on the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. This is His Beautiful Hands by Oscar Cook, and we did Boomerang by Oscar Cook, so you will know that they're fairly grisly, his stories, so there is a graphic horror trigger, but that isn't the main problem. In the story, integral to the story, is an incest theme, and which people may find unpleasant, and integral to the story, there is a basically a racist slur. I'll talk more about that after the commentary, but if any of these things are likely to upset you, then don't listen. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? His Beautiful Hands by Oscar Cook. I was not grumbling. I had given that up a long while. I was merely contemplating the rain, wondering what a whole dry day would be like. And I came to the conclusion that such a phenomenon was impossible, at least until the forty days of St. Swithin were up, that the age of miracles was past. And then, without warning, I shuddered and felt that cold, creepy feeling which premonates a horror spread over me, or rather down me, from my head to my feet. A presence was drawing near. I realised that immediately and almost as quickly knew whose that presence must be. It must be Warwick, he being the only living soul capable of awakening such sensibility in me. I turned reluctantly from watching the rain to look at the far end of the club smoking room. Warwick had just entered the door and was approaching. Before he reached me, I had pressed the bell knob in the wall close to my chair. I knew the necessary adjunct to Warwick's presence was inevitable. He spread himself over a chair, which he drew close to mine, lighted one of his beastly Philippine cigarettes, blew a mouthful of smoke into my face, and leaning forward with hands on knees, elbows out at right angles, barked out, Well, for a moment or so I said nothing. I knew that ambiguous monosyllable, half question, half assertion, and the tone in which it was made. A story was coming, and it would not be a pleasant one. While I was silent, the waiter arrived. Two whiskies and soda, I ordered. Doubles, supplemented Warwick. I nodded and looked him squarely in the eyes, paid him in his own coin. Well, I asked, and waited for him to make the next move. A yarn, he said succinctly and succulently, as good as any I've heard for many a day. He chuckled. I continued to face him squarely. A beastly one, I slowly asserted, judging from your tone. He nodded, and at that moment the waiter returned. Warwick took his glass, and I took mine. To his beautiful hands, he toasted. They've earned me fifty guineas, and so saved my bacon for a few days. Would you like the yarn, or... I made a gesture, so non-committable as to mean assent. At least, that's how Warwick read it. Listen, he began, looking round to see that we were alone and drawing his chair still closer to mine. It's a tale of revenge and passion. With a capital purple P, I interpolated. Warwick paid no heed. About as sweetly gruesome and gruesomely diabolic as I know. He put out the half-smoked cigarette, took a long pull at his whiskey and soda, and began. Did you uh, see that piece in the paper today about the sculptor Johnny who lost his right arm? 
I nodded. Well, it's that sort of story, only... I put out a hand quickly to interrupt him. If I must hear the story, I'd hear it properly with full names and details, not shorn of its curtains and suspense. Warwick took the hint. I'm going too fast, he muttered. But even now, it rather gets me, and... Well, it's like this. About two years ago, I was in the habit of frequenting a lady barber's. There was a craze for them then. Now there are only one or two left. And one of the assistants was head and shoulders, metaphorically speaking, above the other girls for looks and personality. She never had a spare moment. I was one of her regulars, and there was always a fellow, a customer more than twice her age, always hanging around, whom I grew to hate. And he comes into the story, I asked. He is the story, Warwick answered forcefully. He and Paulina and his violin. A musician, I couldn't help saying contemptuously for rightly or wrongly, instrumentalists are my bête noire. Warwick grunted annoyance at my interruption and continued, Well, he was dead nuts on Paulina, and she, to my disgust, played up to him. Or so it seemed. He was always bringing her presents, giving her tickets for his concerts, taking her out of evenings, and generally going the whole hog. Something in his tone, and in the choice and emphasis of his last expression, seemed to convey a deeper meaning than just the words. You mean... I asked, and then broke off, for I hate talking lightly of a woman, even an unknown one. Warwick has no such scruples. Exactly, he replied. She went to be his keep, although she stayed on at the shop. But of course this establishment was not set up all at once. It evolved, so to speak, out of what appeared quite natural, though unfortunate, circumstances. Warwick paused to take another drink. And the situation annoyed you, I asked. You felt aggrieved, slighted. He nodded. In a way, yes, I'm no saint. And I'm a bachelor, and Paulina was... Was? I queried quickly. For a moment he made no answer. Then, indifferent churchman though he is, he crossed himself. She's dead, he said flatly. Died in childbed ten days ago. I went to the funeral. A double one, hers and the child's. Thank God it died. That they both died he added with a sudden fervour, and then slumped back into the chair and relapsed into a silence as inexplicable as his sudden change from ghoulishly journalistic delight. I waited. This new mood intrigued me, and I sensed tragedy more real and personal than Warwick had meant to lay bare. It was obvious that he needed a safety valve. Sorry for that display, he said, when presently he pulled himself up in his chair and smiled. It shan't occur again. But... I loved her, in spite of the fact that five generations ago a coloured strain got introduced to the family. It was that, of course, which... But I go too fast. I offered him a cigarette. A story is easier to follow, I suggested, if it begins at the beginning and not halfway through. So far, all you've really told me is that there's a musician and Paulina and his violin, and you mentioned one more thing, or rather two, his beautiful hands. How do they come in? Warwick laughed, an ungodly sound. They don't, he said at length. They don't. That's the cream of the story, the point of the... He started to laugh again and pulled up short. I'm off colour tonight, he muttered. But it's like this. This Mr. A, we'll call him that, was a celebrated violinist. And apart from realising the value of his hands, he was inordinately vain of them. They were his passion. But I couldn't stand them. They weren't a man's hands. And they weren't a woman's, they were, were, ethereal, I suggested. Warwick's hand suddenly gripped my arm tightly, 
and his face came close to mine. The very word, he said, ethereal. And it was one of Paulina's jobs to take care of them, tend them, worship them. For that is what he demanded of her, worship of his hands. I nodded. She was a wonderful manicurist with a cool, soothing touch that somehow seemed to linger on your fingers long after the treatment was over and urge you back to her till you were conscious of a semi-physical, semi-spiritual longing. All of us customers experienced that feeling. And the curious thing is that it wasn't sexual or sensuous, but just caressing. Warwick paused and looked at me with, for him, a curiously appealing glance, as much to say, you do understand, don't you? I nodded. The touch of the East, I said gently. I suppose your Paulina had Javanese blood. Warwick smiled his thanks. You're right, he went on. And it was really on account of that uh, taint that the trouble arose. They're revengeful, the Javanese. They never forget an injury to themselves or to those they love, though they're all fire. And Paulina was passionate. They're capable of slow smouldering like a station waiting room fire. Again, Warwick paused, and I began to think we never should get to the story. I looked at my watch. The time was 6.30 p.m., in a quarter of an hour, I should have to go and dress. I was dining out. I leant across to him. So far, I said, you've really told me little, hardly enough to make me even a trifle curious. Of course, if you'd rather not, I respect your wish. On the other hand, that was enough. I had touched him on the journalistic roar. Wait, he almost barked at me. Wait, it's a short story, but, well, one day, just a year ago, Mr. A came into the establishment with the little finger of his left hand bound up. Of course, Paulina had to be in attendance. I'd just been finished and stayed on to have a cup of tea. Naturally, I couldn't help hearing their conversation, mostly about the finger. The nail had become discoloured, and all round the cuticle was puffy and sore. Mr. A could hardly bear to let Paulina touch it, yet he longed for the caress of her massage. She suggested a doctor... But he wouldn't hear of that. She and she only must look after his hands. We could all understand that in general, but not in this case, when medical advice was sorely and obviously needed. He was adamant, infatuated beyond belief. A week later, he was back. The finger was worse, much worse, and the third finger was beginning to become affected. And was he still adamant? I couldn't help putting the question, for I was rapidly beginning to put two and two together and making four. Yes, and so it went on till all the fingers of both hands were in various stages of affectedness. It was horrible, I say, bloody. Day after day he would come in with his filthy bandaged hands, undo his bandages, expose his rotting fingers, and talk about them until we customs and the other girls were utterly sick. You had your remedy, I interrupted, even if the girls hadn't. Warwick looked at me pityingly. That's just what we hadn't got. He spoke in a most matter-of-fact way. Something held us, drew us. Of course, the proprietress was doing a roaring trade, but we didn't care. We sensed something. What? We didn't know. But we meant to be in at the death. And Paulina? Was her usual sweet self, controlled, gentle, amusing, sympathetic, efficient? Without a flinch, at least an outward blench, she attended to the ghastly sights passed from Mr. A, to whom she was all kindness, to other customers. So matters went on, till one day, just after Mr. A had gone out, one of the girls was crossing the room and slipped on something on the floor. It rolled under her feet, 
She thought it was a pencil and stooped to pick it up. Then an awful scream ran through the room and she fell down in a faint. We rushed to her. By her side, where it had fallen from her grasp, was the middle rotting finger of a man's hand. Severed, I gasped, gripped at last. Warwick shook his head. For a moment or so, he couldn't speak. No, he managed at last. No, it had just rotted off, and the stink as one touched it was enough to... to... He put his hand to his nose and shivered all over. By a freak of the weather, the rain had ceased, and the evening light flooded through the smoking room window. It brought us back to normal. Warwick shook himself. Do you want the rest? he asked. I've just time, I said, looking at my watch. Warwick drained his glass. We picked up the girl and carried her out, leaving for the moment only Paulina in the room. I was the first to return. As I entered, she quickly put her hands behind her back, but she hadn't been quick enough, for I distinctly saw that she was holding the rotting finger. I went up to her and put a hand on her shoulder, horror-struck though I was. Paulina, I cried. Tell me truly, in spite of... of... you love him? Her immediate answer was to laugh hysterically. Then she held out her hand, on which lay the filthy rotting finger. Could you love that? she asked. I couldn't answer, but my whole face expressed volumes. Then why insult me? she spoke very bitterly. That's what I think of him, and all men, fit for the scrap heap. And as she spoke... She carelessly flung the horror into the waste paper basket. It fell with hardly any thud, but the fall sent up a cloud of stenchful vapour. Paulina seemed not to notice it. I only wish, she began, then stopped as the others came back. That was the beginning of the end. Paulina gave notice the proprietress would not dissuade her, and consequently Mr. A gave up coming. The last time he came... He showed us both hands, devoid of fingers and thumbs, and all the time he raved to Paulina. And you kept up with her, married her. The dead child was yours, I put the question very gently. Warwick spread out his hands. You'd think so, he said a trifle grimly, and it should be so according to the best novels. But you'd be wrong. No, I lost sight of her too, till just before the end she sent for me and told me all. In confidence, he shook his head. Not necessarily, but I must get it off my chest and I'd like you to know. Can't you guess? I didn't try, and he went on. Mr. A was her father. Eighteen years before he had seduced and left her mother, there's no need to say more. This was Paulina's revenge. She'd nursed it for years. Remember her Javanese strain? You mean, I gasped in spite of myself. Exactly. She used a native poison, a secret from her ancestors on that side, now dead with her. She planned the whole thing. And to help her attract him and the others, myself included, she doped our tea and coffee with a filthy, horrible concoction brewed from... No, I can't even mention that to you. The rain was falling again. Gloom once more pervaded the room. My thoughts jumped to the funeral. And the baby, I asked, was Mr. A's too? Warwick answered with a return to his ghoulishly journalistic appreciation of a dramatic point. 
Paulina didn't get up early enough, as the saying is, quite to get the top side of him. Just before she decided to apply the poison trick through his nails, he got her drunk one night, and, well, you can guess the rest. That settled the matter of her living with him. Talk of poetic justice. Ye gods, I've never heard of such a case. Him with rotting fingers dying by inches. There's no cure. The poison's in his blood. Paulina as good as a murderess lying in childbed and her baby still born. Born with no fingers, nor toes, hardly hands and feet. Just red, puffy lumps of flesh, not even webbed. He pulled out a cigarette case, lighted a cigarette and put the case back. And I'll have another whiskey and soda, double. And then I'll toddle along to the dogs. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? Well, that was His Beautiful Hands by Oscar Cook. It was quite short. It's about 16 minutes and 49 seconds. And you may be glad that it was only that short. So uh, I said at the beginning, this was the first time I'd ever done a trigger warning. And you probably know why now, if you did listen to it. So this is the second of his stories we've done. You may remember Boomerang. I won't spoil it if you haven't, but it's pretty equally as repulsive. I'd say, but without the, without the incest and major racism. So his beautiful hands. The reason I did it was that it's uh, consistently rated as one of the most scary horror stories. And in fact, it is a horror story rather than a ghost story. There's actually, there's nothing supernatural in this story at all. It's just uh, vile, isn't it? Uh, so it's, it's a horror story, really. And it was in the first pan book of horror stories. If, we, if you read the biography, you'll see that it was published by his wife in one of the anthologies that they did when they had a publishing company, which was called In the Night or something. Yeah, 1931. And then it was um, released again in 37 in another anthology, which is very hard to get. These are both out of print. The Pan Book of Horror Stories, Volume 1, is about £777. So it's, it is pretty expensive. So there you go. Let's plow into this. I got hold of it. I have my ways. You can't buy it on Amazon, but I have my ways. It's not on Gutenberg. Yes, I have my ways, but I know where to get hold of a copy. So anyway, so he deliberately sets out to shock us clearly. You, you can imagine this in 1931 being really um, very shocking. First of all, the goriness of it. We, in a sense of as moderns, depends when you're listening to this, but uh, we think of ourselves as moderns and we're used to things like the saw and the human caterpillar. And I've never actually seen those because they're not my cup of tea. This kind of horror really totally isn't my cup of tea. And I, you probably know I prefer the, the clever Edwardian, Edith Wharton type stories, you know, uh, E.F. Benson and stuff. But, uh, you know, here we are. It is what it is. Uh, but, but we've seen a lot of things like that. I did see Midsummer. I don't know if you've seen that one. And there's a gory bit in that one. The two old, old members of the um, community go to the top of the cliff and then go to the bottom of the cliff, and that's fairly gruesome. So, but I think we've uh, we've actually got used to that—the real horribleness of the anatomical horror. Then there's the incest. Okay, it's almost like he sat down and thought, like with the other one, how can I be really gratuitous? How can I make this even more vile? 
So, aha, I'll put that little twist in. One of my bugbears is that back in the day, you think of the Lavender Hill mob. I'm talking about this. This is These were made before I was born, let me tell you. But, you know, the stories of the criminals used to steal things. There were, there were thieves and uh, then they became murderers and then they became serial killers. And it was like a, an arms race for vileness, you know. And then, of course, typically, if you watch a gritty modern TV drama, there's going to be paedophilia in there, you know, pretty much rapes, not just one, multiple and it's almost like, oh, we've got, to, we've got to put more and more stuff in. So I think this is, in a sense to us moderns, this incest is horrible. But yeah, we've seen it before. And I think that the thing that is quite hard for us is probably nothing to them. And this is the, the issue of the, the, the Paulina having Javanese, Javanese ancestry. And this enables her to be uh, vindictive and pl- as if Europeans can't manage that, you know. And the, the, the taint... So this is a dilemma, and you'll heard me talk about this before. We read stories where, from a period where, written by people of European ancestry, who, in whom casual racism is pervasive. It's their worldview. They, they don't question it. It is just how they think the world is. They are, in some sense, superior. Well, not in some sense, they think they are superior. And it always makes me laugh because there's a depending where you're from, um, I guess there's a a hierarchy of the superiority. You know, so somebody, you know, based on the colour of somebody's skin, the lighter it, apparently, the lighter it goes, the better, apparently. And then men, so men are better than women, and rich men are better than poor men. And, you know, in the British Isles, like an Englishman's better than a Scotsman, but a Scotsman's better than a Welshman. Where does a Welsh woman come in this, or an Irishman, you know? And it's uh, certainly better than a Frenchman, you know? And it's like, it's just absurd obviously probably more than that but any in any case your question might be why did you read it out well i said it was a it is a it is a well um anthologized story so there's that it was recommended to read out by somebody and in a sense if we don't aren't true to these stories we we gloss over or we tidy away these attitudes which we find difficult now. It's as if they didn't have them. And I think that is problematic if we pretend that the people in 1920 in a British Empire club in Singapore, where certainly if you were Indian or Chinese or, or anything really, you wouldn't have been allowed in. Or a woman actually probably. You wouldn't be allowed in, you know. So if we pretend these things didn't happen, then we're not we're being dishonest. So that's one reason for, two reasons for keeping it. Now, you may argue hypocrisy because there are a couple of times which I have, uh, stories which I won't read out. And uh, one is The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. And it's a, it's a, it's a good horror story, well, well thought of horror story. And also the uh, Hume Nesbitt's The Land of the Hibiscus Blossom, and the issue there is that not that their racism is intended to offend people. It absolutely isn't. It's just, as I said, it's just the way they looked at things. They would be quite astonished if if anybody was offended, I think, if we were to be able to go back then. It would be seen as an extraordinary thing because this is just the way things are to people of their background. I'm not saying it makes it right, okay? 
you know, with those two stories, it's just, it's just so much of it. It's just like every page and it's just like, whoa, it just makes it hard going to get through. So that would be my reason for choosing not to read those ones out. And I suppose if I had a story where uh, the issue of race was meant to be deliberately violent, you know, in a sense of inciting hatred, I wouldn't do that either. Uh, not that I've come across many like that, to be fair. In fact, I can't think of any of the stories themselves. It's just more like this casual stuff. And I realise these are up for debate. Okay, anyway, so we could go on and on and on and on. And I don't really want to turn this into that kind of, this kind of um, podcast. I really don't. But at the same time, we live in a world where you can't ignore that. Okay, I mean, me, you know, I don't, going back to my horrible incest-ridden, uh, uh, paedophilic detective stories, I like Miss Marple's. I saw The Dig on Netflix recently, which I don't know if you've seen, but that's just a lovely, lovely film. That's the kind of film I like. Lovely. Uh, but but valid as well, you know, talking about people and things. I don't know if you've ever seen The, the Detectorists, which is a BBC series, and that is lovely and gentle as well. That's what I like. Anyway, just a quick recap on Oscar Cook. He was born Richard Martin Oscar Cook in London, 1888, died in London, 1952. His father owned an athletic goods company and they were fairly well off. He was brought up in Broxbourne, just outside London, and his first job was as a clerk there. But very shortly afterwards, he went to make his fortune in a rubber plantation in Borneo. And this was what young men of his generation did, become tea planters and rubber planters in the in the East. Um, he didn't get on well as a plant, uh, in the plantation. He was sacked, but then he got a job in the British Colonial Service and was was what they call a district officer in the colonial service. <laughs> Again, that's massively problematic these days. Got married in 1924, got divorced in 1938, returned to England, wrote a very best-selling autobiography of his time in Borneo, and then wrote a lot of supernatural stories. And the, the series that I was talking about him and his wife produced was Not at Night. So, his beautiful hands. Here we have, this is the same thing if you read Boomerang, uh, what you've got is there's the urbane Englishman in his club smoking in the Far East. And this this guy uh, portrays himself very much like in Boomerang as this kind of liberal sort of fellow. And he blames Warwick. And so Warwick is allowed to tell these gruesome stories, which he, of course, because I think he makes a comment about women. He said, I would never talk lightly of a woman, blah, blah, blah. But Warwick would. So he kind of excuses himself and gives it all to Warwick. And Warwick doesn't let him down. Warwick has oodles of these revolting stories, which he, he warns us are going to be revolting, to be fair to him, and keeps on keeps on with it. I mean, in terms of uh, structure, it's quite a short story. There are twists. There's about at least three twists in it, which is pretty good. You know, if you get one in, that's good, but two is very good. Three, you know, so the guy's fingers drop off, ideal uh, punishment for a violinist, and when we twist it, and it was her that poisoned him, we didn't expect that. Then we turns out to be his daughter. We didn't expect that. Then she has a child and we didn't expect that. And the child is deformed and I didn't expect that, but maybe I'm naive. So I think there's three twists and it's always good to get a twist. If you want to read um, The Master of Short Stories, read some Oh Henry. He was good at that. I, I liked things I did like. It's, it's nicely written. It's, it flows and it's easy to read. And I particularly like the conversational style. I like reading that because when you narrate that, you can you can pretend you're an actor and somebody may hear me and go, oh, Tony, do you want to be an actor? But I don't know if I do really, to be fair. Can't be bothered. 
So next week, next week, I'm going to do some Poe. We've got requests in for Poe and Lovecraft, probably, and and, um, M.R. James, but probably those three will always get requests in. There's something weird happening on my YouTube channel. I started one and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll put some of the, I'll put the podcasts up, but nobody used to watch it. In fact, like two years nearly went by and nobody looked at it. And then suddenly, poof, there's tons of people subscribing. And I think that must be something to do with um, YouTube's algorithm. People watch it. They like it. It shows it to more people. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the benefit of that is for me, really. But there we are. The other thing to say is, you know, I was saying last week that I got a, or the week before, because I'm doing these by bi-weekly now. Bi-weekly? I was mixed up between biannual and biannual. Uh, yeah, anyway, let's not go into that. I, I do know the difference. Yeah, I got a commission. That was Lady Ferry. And then on the back of that, I got another commission. But this was like a private commission, so I'm not, I'm not actually mentioning the person because he hasn't given me overt permission to do so. To, and that was to do one of his stories, which I really enjoyed. Again, I thought that was a really nicely constructed story. And, but I think he's going to use it for his own publicity purposes. So if you want to commission me to read one of your own stories, or if you want to actually, you know, pick a story for the podcast and willing to donate that to the, the grateful public, then that's cool as well. Music by the Hartwood Institute, that starts off, they've got a new album out called The Witchcraft Murders, and also by the Hair in the Moon, and they've got a new album out. They've got actually two. Gray Malkin, who does it very well, they both are, both them. Um, Jonathan, who runs Hartwood, and Gray Malkin, who runs the uh, Hair in the Moon, are very prolific. Gray Malkin's one that I've got is The Widow's Weeds. That's good. We also feature music by Michael Romeo, who is uh, an Australian guy from Newcastle, I think. Not our Newcastle, not Newcastle, but uh, Newcastle. Uh, that, that was a poor one, I'm sorry. So anyway, there we go. Ramble, ramble, ramble. Support the podcast anywhere you can. You want to commission an episode, rock and roll. If you, uh, if you want to support and be like a solid part of the superstructure, infrastructure of the podcast, then you can either join it for Patreon or Substack. And you get, I'm doing Dracula for exclusives. I'm really enjoying that. It's a big book. It's going to take a while to finish, but pretty cool. So you can join up with that. Or if you just want to buy me a coffee to say thank you, I do do appreciate that. And I do appreciate all the people who do buy me coffees. I haven't had one for a bit, so I'm not hyperactive. Although the speed I'm talking, you might think I am. Okay, that's it. Um, I I think my last book out is called Horror Stories for Halloween. No, no, more Christmas ghost stories. That did really well, actually. And the, there's one coming out now called Haunted Castles. And I've reworked a number of old stories there. I've reworked one that I was called Gothica, which is set in an Austrian schloss. It's got the Gothic, these stories, Haunted Castles. And I've got Dalston Vampire, which I've been giving away free, but I put it in. That's set in a kind of a border peel tower on the Scottish border. Then I've got Dungarvan Castle set in the West Highlands of Scotland. And I've got one called Kerzu, which is set in Brittany. This is the Celtic connection type thing going on. Yeah, so check them out. I've also got, I'm redoing the Haunting of Tullabeg Castle, which is set in Ireland. A lot of these stories are to do with, they, they are, they've got supernatural elements, but the do with men and women, you know, and particularly infidelity. The Celtic stories are very, this theme comes up time and time again. So you have, you have King Arthur, Sir Lancelot and Guinevere. Absolutely. It's got the old king, the queen and her lover. 
and then you've got Jarmud and Grania, which Tullabeg's based on, and then you've got Tristan and Isolde, or Tristan Agesilt in Welsh, although it's probably Pictish, that story, actually. People, I remember reading that. And then the other one, of course, which I'm going to do a Welsh one, I think, which is the story of Lleu and Blodewedd, Flower Face. And these are love triangles, so they're supernatural. I don't know why I'm drawn to do them, because I'm not actually in a love triangle at all. Anyway, that's that. Ramble on, which is a Led Zeppelin song, which I'm quite fond of. Okay, anyway, bye-bye.